Today we're continuing our series called How God Shapes a Person for Impact. And often I think we are people who look at our heroes and assume that they come born ready-made. And by doing so, we overlook the experiences that often will be used of God to shape a person and to turn them into the person that they become. This series looks at Moses before he faced a showdown with Pharaoh, before all of the exciting and dramatic events that we otherwise know his life for, and looks at how those shaped him and how God might, uh, as a result, be working in our own lives today. Uh, Today, in particular, we're looking at the story of Moses' birth and how God builds potential and weakness and how he speaks when it seems that he is silent. I wonder how many of you have heard the story of Anitha Rendell Reisner. Uh, she's a woman who contracted polio as a, uh, as a very young girl long after polio was believed to be eradicated. Her doctor wasn't familiar with it, had never seen, her, seen it, and so she misdiagnosed it. That led to a health condition in her life that resulted in 21 surgeries before she turned 13 years old. She spent years as a child in hospital. It also meant it was difficult for her to fit in at school, and she was on the receiving end of uh, bullying, both both verbally and physically. At the age of 16, uh, Vanitha put her faith in Jesus Christ, and she thought, now things will be better. The worst, I've had such a hard life, surely the worst is behind me. Surely that's in the past now. But it wasn't. uh, In fact, it continued. Uh, Not initially, though. She got a good job. Uh, She ended up marrying a man she met at grad school. She had two daughters. But when her son son was born, he was diagnosed with a rare heart condition. There was a substitute doctor who was treating him, and that doctor didn't uh, fully understand uh, his condition, wasn't very familiar with it. It was a rare condition, and he took her son off of what turned out to be the life-saving medication that he was on, and two days later, he died. Then Vanitha herself uh, found herself with, uh, diagnosed with uh, post-polio syndrome. She ended up in a wheelchair in debilitating pain. And then to top it all off, her husband couldn't take any of this anymore, and he left her. And she was left to care for uh, these, uh, her two daughters as a single mother. Now, she said at one point, losing her, her child, her health, and her marriage almost made her lose her mind. How do you cope with that? How do you deal with circumstances when it just feels as if God's not there? God is not answering your prayers. God is not working in your circumstances, and you just can't see him anywhere. And he seems silent. Those are the kinds of questions that we're bringing to today's passage as uh, we look at what I believe for many of you will be a familiar story. Uh, If you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 to 10. Uh, in the black church Bibles on the little rack in, in the seat in front of you, it's on page 42. 
and uh, we'll walk through this passage together and uh, just be asking those questions of ourselves and of the text as we do so. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young, woman, young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the worst. This is the word of God. Now, the first principle that we see here is that it takes faith to do what's right when God seems silent. When you can't see God at work, when you can't hear from him, you don't understand what he's doing. It takes trust that God's plan is good, that I can can trust him and I can still act on what he has said uh, despite what I can't see. It takes faith to do what's right when God seems absent. Now, a couple are introduced to us in verse 1, and we're not giving the, given their names. Uh, we, we, we learn later in the book of Exodus that these are Amram and Jochebed, but here they're introduced without their names, only with their tribe, uh, so that we will focus on where they're from rather than who they are. Uh, the tribe of Levi will become the tribe that is, is set apart by God to represent him before the people. They will become the priests. And here we're seeing, uh, uh, given a note about uh, this, this tribe that will go on to have that position, and it will become very important that this baby that is born to them is from that tribe later in the story. Now, they get news that would ordinarily have brought them great joy. They hear that Jacobet is pregnant. It should have filled them with joy and excitement, except last week we learned that this is a time when Pharaoh had decreed that all baby boys would have to be killed. At first, he tried to work through the midwives. Then finally, we saw in the last verse of the first chapter that anyone who, who saw Hebrew baby boys was to throw them into the river. And so this news that would have normally brought them excitement now bring some dread. They're going to have a baby. And if you are Jacobed, if you are in this situation, if you are a mother or father at this time, you are praying that it's a girl. Throughout the pregnancy, God, please let it be a girl. Please don't let me have to face this 
not only living under the threat of this, but have to actually uh, deal with this sentence that has been uh, decreed. If that was Jacobed's prayer, her prayer has gone unanswered. Uh, she, uh, she hears that it's a boy. Now, in verse 2, it gives us a strange little note about the boy, and I'm not sure if you've ever seen this. Hear what it says. It says, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Have you ever noticed that? That little detail gets repeat, repeated three times in Scripture. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, 720, when Stephen recounted this story, it says in Acts 720, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. Then in Hebrews 11.23, it also mentions this little detail. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Why did they do that? Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. What's going on here? Is the message that if Moses had been kind of an ugly baby, they would have thrown him out with the trash? Is, does really the fate of the nation of Israel and their deliverance hang on whether this baby has dimples or not? That, that, that kind of feels what's going, what, what it's being said, but surely that can't be it. Well, this word for uh, fine, uh, some of your translations have beautiful, some of them have goodly. Uh, it's actually the word good from Genesis chapter 1. And you remember when God creates everything? And every time he creates something, what does it say? And the Lord looked and saw that it was good. He evaluates it. He sees the goodness of his creation and he takes satisfaction in it. Exact same word here. And, and you put yourself in Jacobet's shoes. She is feeling dread at a time when she should have felt joy. She is feeling fear at all that is going on around her. When she hears, it's a baby boy, that, that news is filling her with, uh, with, with a sense of uh, that impending sentence that's upon him. And yet, when she takes the baby in her arms, everything changes. It is not that Moses is more beautiful than any other baby that's been born. It's just that she looks at this baby boy and she recognizes as God did as he looked at creation, this is good. What Pharaoh has called evil, she recognizes has the fingerprints of God upon it. And she will not do what the Pharaoh has, has commanded. She will uh, now, seeing the beauty of God's creation, she refuses to fear Pharaoh. Instead, she chooses to fear God, and she will put herself at his mercy and uh, do what she can to protect this child and to follow God's will. She's filled with courage as she sees God's fingerprints on this child. But notice what she does next. In verse 3, she puts them in a basket and floats them among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, most of, most of you who grew up in Sunday school, you know that Moses is a baby that gets into the basket. But it's not the ordinary word for basket that's actually used here. This word for basket is only used in one other place in all of Scripture. And it's the story of Noah and the ark. The word for basket here is ark. And it gives us a hint 
as to Jacobed's thought process as she is going through this incredibly trying time in her life where God seems silent. Jacobed is facing an impossible situation. She's been trying to hide her baby for months, but she realizes this can't go on forever. She needs to act. It's only a matter of time before she, she's discovered her son's killed and she's punished for, by Pharaoh for disobeying him. So she rehearses in her mind everything that she's been taught about God. She goes back and she thinks about God's creation, God's, God, God's story of his dealing with humanity. And she remembers another time like she's in right now. She remembers another time when humanity was, was filled with evil and there was great violence done to people. She remembers another time when people, in, in fact, almost an entire generation was in danger of being wiped away and drowned in the water. And she remembers that at that time, God delivered those who had faith in him and trusted him and got into an ark. And in the desperation of the moment, knowing this child is not Pharaoh's child, this is God's child, she chooses to trust in him despite the silence, despite not seeing God, not, not being able to understand what's happening in her circumstances. She puts her trust in God and she puts her son into the only means of deliverance that she can think of. She puts him into an ark. Now, that doesn't mean that she shaped the basket and eh, that's not what's going on. But in calling this basket an ark, it is giving us a hint that she saw in her circumstances uh, the birth of another, another nation, uh, a, a new start for the people of God. And she expresses her trust in God and looks to him for help. Now, as she does so, she's probably praying that she can hide this baby in this little ark basket until the edict passes. That she's hoping he'll never be discovered. That she can get away with this. And in the same way that Moses, uh, that Noah found safety in the ark until the water receded, she's hoping that her little baby boy uh, can be uh, hidden safely in the ark until Pharaoh's mind changes. Well, if that was her prayer, her prayer wasn't answered. In verse 5, not only does someone discover the ark, but get this, the daughter of the very one who ordered the baby boys to be killed is the one who discovers it. If you are Jacobed, you want anyone else. This is almost the last person. Obviously, Pharaoh would be the last person you want to discover it. Pharaoh's daughter is about as close as, as you can get. And, and so, again, everything seems to be going in the exact opposite direction to her prayers. Pharaoh's daughter has come down to the river to bathe. She's noticed the floating basket. She asks one of her servants to go get it for her. The basket gets opened up. Verse 6 records what's, what happened. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. You don't, this is the last thing. Why did Moses have to be crying at this moment? The princess is having a bath. 
If you are heading down to the river, you are looking for serenity. You want quiet. You want peace. You want to bathe and rest, and you are seeking to do so with peace. And if you discover a baby, and that baby is, is, is gurgling cutely and moving its little arms and smiling and giggling, then maybe you'll be predisposed, even though your father said that he's got to be killed. But you know what it's like? Someone, you, you could be playing with a baby and think that they're the cutest thing in the world. What happens when they start crying? You're like this. You pass them back to the mother. Okay, I'm done here. I'm done. You know, a, a very cute baby suddenly becomes uncute, if that's a word. And, and the, the moment is spoiled. And we're asking ourselves the question, where is God in all this? Couldn't he have kept Moses from crying at least? Couldn't, couldn't somebody else other than Pharaoh's daughter have discovered this? Now, of course, many of you, most of you perhaps know the ending of the story, and you're going to say to me, Paul, what are you thinking? This, this was God's perfect plan. This was all going according to God's perfect ordering of events here. But what I want you to see is that when you slow down and look at it, you realize at this moment, this didn't seem like a perfect plan. It felt like a perfect storm. It felt like no matter how I pray, things are going the opposite of the way I, I think they should go. And, and, and this happens, and we are given this account because that's where we often find ourselves in life. We find ourselves face-to-face -face with God's silence, face-to-face -face with circumstances that just don't make any sense, where God feels like he's absent, that he's, he's not answering our prayers. He's not at work in our lives. And we're given this picture to, to, to teach us and to guide us. Jacob teaches us that when we are faced with the silence of God, we are to look back to scripture and try to understand our circumstances in light of what God has said. She shows us how to act in faith despite what we see. And she shows us how to wait. And all of us know waiting's hard to do. She would have loved to seen an easier outcome and not had to go through the turmoil of this. But she's faced with it. Uh, Vanitha Rendell Reisner again tells us about uh, this, uh, the, the challenges, and she, 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 she puts it like this. This is the most precious answer God can give us. Wait. It makes us cling to him rather than to an outcome. God knows what I need. I do not. He sees the future. I cannot. His perspective is eternal. Mine is not. He will give me what is best for me when it is best for me. Those are hard words to accept. Because personally, I want to cling to an outcome, not to God. I, I, I don't want to have to wait. I think I want it now. I think I do know what's best for me. But of course, Vanith is right. God's plan is good. God knows what he's doing. He understands things that I can't possibly understand. And in the midst of these circumstances, I'm called to trust him.
I'm called to look to him in the midst of the silence and trust in his perfect plan. So we've looked at Jochebed and said that it takes faith to do what's right when God seems absent. Now I want to look at her daughter Miriam and see that it takes faith to act in hope when God seems absent. When it doesn't seem like God's working, it's easy to become cynical and negative and give in to despair. It, it takes faith to look to our circumstances and hope when it just doesn't feel like God's there. We don't see him. We don't hear from him. We face his hiddenness and we deal with his silence. Try to put yourself in Miriam's shoes. She has two brothers at this point. Uh, Aaron, the older, is about three years old. The younger, uh, Moses, is about three months old. Miriam herself is old enough to, uh, to be able to go about freely, as she's doing in this chapter, but not old enough to have been assigned uh, work in the field as a part of uh, her uh, uh, family chores. So most scholars believe that she's between 6 and 12 years old. She's elementary school age. And so if you're here today with your mom and dad, this passage is for you. It is uniquely given to you to understand uh, how to respond to some of these same circumstances that we kind of, uh, it's easy to write off and say, well, this is just for the adults. No, this one is for the kids. Imagine you're living in a time when the pr prime minister has declared he hates all of your people, whatever that might mean. Uh, imagine that you're at a time where the government has ordered all of your people's baby boys to be killed. You might say, well, Miriam's not a baby boy. She gets off. No, no. When the top government makes that kind of declaration, people start to look at you differently no matter who you are. They start to treat you differently. You become a target. People use different words. They see you with different eyes. And so Miriam is experiencing all that. Now, in the lead up to your baby brother's birth, the family has been talking. Uh, all of the conversations about what will we do? What will happen? Uh, if, if it's a boy, what, what, what on earth? How are we going to get through this? And in the midst of all of this, your father, uh, Amram, is mostly absent because he's been made a slave, sent to the border, uh, the, uh, border cities to, to build them up. We saw that last chapter. Uh, and so it's mostly you and your mom. That's it. And you were left to deal with this huge uh, challenge. Your mom's prayed about it and decided to put your little baby brother in a little basket and put him in the river. Look what it says in verse 4. And his sister, again referring to Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. I want you to imagine what it would take for her to do that. You put a baby boy into a basket and place him in the Nile River at this time, a river that was known to be infested with crocodiles, and it looks like you are putting out lunch for the local wildlife. He smells like dinner. 
how would you like to be the daughter, the, 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 the older sister waiting at the riverside for your brother to be eaten by a crocodile? If he's not eaten by a crocodile, likely this little basket that's been put together is going to be capsized by a, 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 ray, a wave or a movement of water. That's, that's also very likely. How'd you like to be sitting there waiting for your brother to drown? If he's not eaten by a crocodile or drowned in the water, then likely he is going to be discovered by an Egyptian, an Egyptian who has been ordered to kill the boy, and now you're not seeing him just left to the elements. Now you're going to witness an actual murder. Those are the most likely scenarios that Miriam is to expect as she is sitting waiting by the river's edge. Unless she hasn't given up, unless she doesn't give in to despair, unless she is not negative and cynical in this situation, unless she has chosen to trust that this whole trusting in God and putting him in an ark could somehow mean his rescue. I don't know about you, I can be sitting watching a, a, a show or a movie with my family at home, and when things start kind of ratcheting up the tension and gets to this part of the suspense, it, it's too much for me, and I often just pause it. And the whole family go, what, what are you doing? This is the most exciting part. I, I can't take it. There's too much tension. This is that part in the movie. And Miriam stands at the riverside watching her brother. There's no other explanation for that than this child, again, elementary school age, has chosen to trust in God and to look to him for deliverance. Now, to be clear, Miriam has, has been almost certainly told by her mother to stay here to watch over him. But Miriam's all in. She's committed to this task. And as you see what happens later in the story, you realize... Now, she's not just kind of going, sitting in the corner like this. She is taking this role that she has been assigned very seriously. Now, when she sees the Egyptian princess open the, open the basket, this is even more scary for her, right? She knows this is the daughter of the man who has ordered the babies killed. And yet, this little girl approaches the woman and with confidence and grace asks her. She speaks confidently and uh, we, we need to recognize she's speaking to her in a second language, right? She, this is a Hebrew family. She's now speaking to her in Egyptian. In verse 7, it says this, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Would you have had the faith to do that? Would you have the courage to approach someone of this stature with all that's hinging on this moment? Would you have had the courage to go and speak like that? If she hadn't have, if she'd have hesitated, if she'd have just said, oh my goodness, this is really stressful, I'm going to go call my mom. The opportunity has passed. If she'd have just held back and decided, I'm not really good at speaking and my Egyptian isn't perfect, I, I might make a mistake. 
Your brother is gone. She puts her trust in God at a time again. God, you don't even know if God cares anymore. He's been silent. He he doesn't seem to be acting. None of your prayers seem to be answered. And yet she trusts him anyway. She chooses to trust him the way her mother trusts him. And it fills her with this confidence. And God gives her, I believe, words to speak at a time when her words count. And her words lead to the deliverance of a nation. Miriam's hope-filled action sets off a chain of events that will lead to the rescue of the Israelites. Pharaoh's daughter sends Miriam to get a nurse. Miriam runs off and gets her mother. She comes back. The princess says, I'll pay you for your your wages if you will only uh, nurse this child uh, until he is weaned. And Moses is not only saved, but the family is provided for in the process. Imagine Pharaoh, who has commanded the, the baby boys to be killed, that same Pharaoh is, in a sense, paying this woman to uh, care for her own son. Incredible turn of events. Miriam shows me that you don't have to wait 20 years listening to sermons and Bible studies before you act out on your faith, before you do something for the Lord. A child's simple act of trust in God can make a difference, can change lives. Just deciding to do what your mom and dad say out of obedience to the Lord can have an impact. It it means something. It changes lives. And so you need to ask yourself the question, what could you do if you decided to start living out your faith now? What could you do if you didn't let fear get in the way of your faith? What could you do if you looked for ways to serve the Lord now, not thinking that this is something I do 10 years from now? It's a recognition that our faith begins the moment that we trust him, the moment we choose to walk with him, and that can happen at any age. So we've, we started with Jochebed, and we said that it takes faith to do what's right when God seems absent. Then we looked at Miriam, and we said it, it, it takes faith to act in hope when God seems absent. But the passage, unfortunately, doesn't end there. And the last lesson is the hardest. And it teaches us that it takes faith to let go when God seems absent. It's hard to release control when you can't see that God is in control. When you you understand, oh, God's got this, then I can easily give it over to him. But when you can't see him, when you don't hear from him, when it just seems like chaos, hard to trust the Lord hard to let go and release it to him. And yet, that's often the decision that we are called to make. It takes faith to let go when God seems absent. Now, this passage is filled with faith-filled decisions, but verse 10 is the hardest. It says this, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Jacobed joins a list of women in Scripture who are called to 
give their sons to the Lord. Uh, Hannah does that with Samuel. Mary, in the end, has to do that with Jesus. Jochebed does that here with Moses. It was hard enough to release a three-month-old baby to, to, to the waters of the Nile. That took an incredible act of faith. I have to trust that God can take care of my son even, uh, even amidst the crocodiles and the waves. But she's nursed this child for about three years by this point. Now she's had time to, to, to think about her hopes and dreams for him. She's seen him take his first steps. He's begun to talk. His personality has come out. And so now letting go is that much harder. But in faith, she lets him go. She releases him to God's plan. And I think each of us faces times when we're challenged to do the same thing, to let go. Not to let go of our responsibilities, but to let go of the control that we want to have on a situation. To, to let go of, of circumstances that we can't control. Uh, situations where we're called to accept God's plan, accept circumstances that we can't change. We entrust them to God, and by faith we accept that he is in control. But again, when God is silent, that is so hard to do. When, it just, when you can't see him, when it doesn't look like he is acting on your behalf, it, it is just that much more challenging. Romans 8.28 famously says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't know about you, but this is a verse that I think our tendency is to always want to apply it to someone else. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verse that feels better when it's evaluating somebody else's circumstances. We read stories like the one about Moses' birth, and we say, well, of course his mother could do that. See how amazingly everything turned out. But the whole point of this story is up until the very end, and even in, in, in the end of our chapter, end of our passage this morning, nobody knew that this was God's perfect plan. Nobody could see that this was his perfect plan. Again, it just seemed like a perfect storm. It wasn't clear what God was doing. And certainly no one could see how these circumstances were good. What's good about a government that kills babies? What's good about having to set your baby afloat among crocodiles? What's good about having to give your baby to another woman? And now she owns him. It's now his baby, her baby. What's good about that? Nothing seemed good about this situation. And yet, as we will later see, this was all a part of God's perfect plan. I also want you to notice, God is never mentioned in this entire section. He's absent. The narrator could very easily have said after each little section, and this is what God was doing, and notice how he was orchestrating these events. He doesn't do any of that. He, it, he, he tells us nothing about God, doesn't even mention him, 
Because when we are in those moments where our faith is being tested, when circumstances have us feeling overwhelmed, we often can't see him. We don't know what he's doing. Our prayers seem to come back to us empty. We don't understand what God is up to. And in those moments, we are tested. Our faith is tested. Will I trust in God's goodness or will I take things into my own hands? Will I release this to God or will I take control myself? Bruce Pandolfini was the chess consultant on the novel and then the Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. Uh, it was Gandolfini who was uh, the one who came up with the title, The Queen's Gambit, in fact. He's a former chess master himself, but as a chess coach and mentor, they, they, they say that he may have led more chess coaching sessions than anyone in the world, famous for the influence that he's had on the top chess masters in international competition. Hear how he describes his method. My lessons consist of a lot of silence. I listen to other teachers and they're always talking. He said, I let my students think. If I do ask a question and I don't get the right answer, I'll rephrase the question and wait. I never give the answer. Most of us really don't appreciate the power of silence. Some of the most effective communication, he says, between student and teacher, between master players, takes place during silent periods. I read that and I'm like, yeah, but I, I like God to speak clearly. I don't like to have to think. I want God to just make it clear. But God wants us to grow. He wants us to draw near to him. And to do that, he speaks in the silence. Today's passage is about a woman and her daughter and the tough choices they faced when the storm raged and God seemed silent. Their faith in the invisible God led to the rescue of a baby. Their faith in the goodness of God's plan led to the deliverance of a nation. Wait, I thought that was Moses. No, it started with the women. You wouldn't even have Moses without the courage uh, of these women about the courage of the women that we saw last week with Shifra and Pua. God shows us how their story ends. We, we get to see the end of their story to give us hope and confidence when we don't see how our story ends. We often don't get to see things neatly packaged up and understood for us and spelled out for us. We get their ending so that we can trust him when... Uh, he seems invisible. And so I need to ask what God might be trying to say to you in the silence right now. What, what message could God be trying to communicate? Is he teaching you to try and see your circumstances in light of scripture? Is he calling you to look back to what he's done, even though you can't see what he's doing, even though you don't know what he's up to? If you're, here, if you're here today with your parents, is he showing you that you can act on your faith no matter what age you are? That it doesn't, 
You don't have to wait until you become a mom or a dad. It starts the moment that you trust in Jesus. Is he showing you what faith can accomplish when it deals head on with its fears? When you don't let your fears get in the way of what faith invites you to do? Is he reminding you that simple acts of service and obedience can please the Lord and impact people? Or is he asking you a more difficult thing? Is he asking you to let go of something that you have been holding on to? Again, not to let go of responsibilities, but to let go of a role that maybe you have taken for yourself that belongs to the Lord. I think I need to end with Vanitha. We began with her, and you probably would come to the conclusion that after all that she had been through, surely this woman is bitter. Surely this woman has become cynical. Surely circumstances of life have just warped her her belief in, in God and in what's possible. In her book, The Scars That Have Shaped Me, she writes this. He's carried me through the darkest days and given me hope in the pouring rain. The one who holds the universe holds me tenderly. He's taught me that joy and gratitude are choices. They are independent of circumstances. I know my life on this earth will never be perfect. What looks like a bow today may unravel tomorrow. New struggles may take, take the place of old ones, but God's faithfulness remains constant, for it is unchanging. Our faith is not a facade that we erect to convince ourselves and others that pain doesn't hurt. Instead, she says, it is an oak tree that can withstand the storms of doubt and pain in our lives and grow stronger through them. She invites us, along with Jochebed, along with Miriam, to look to the God who gives resiliency in the storm. To trust in a God who speaks to us even when it seems like he's silent. And to trust in a God whose plan is good even when we can't see how it possibly could be. Let's look to him now in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, it's so much easier to read about these truths than it is to live them. We need your strength for that. We're happy to do what you say when it makes sense to us, but it's so much harder in the darkness when we can't see, when we can't understand. Father, I pray that you would give special grace to all this morning who are in the storm. Fill them with your spirit and with power. Help us all to act in faith. Help us to trust in your plan. Help us to let go and stop acting like we're God. And Father, we pray for our children and for our youth this morning. Help them to live out their faith. Would you give them the courage to trust you? you minister to them in the silence. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.